Assalamu alaikum and welcome back to 786 Boulevard. This is episode 35, Sufism, stand-up and quote-unquote mainstream media with Azhar Osman. The intention anyway is to, you know, never corrupt the artistic motive and to figure out a way to operate where, you know, the art is so cool and so good that it is commercially viable and you don't, and people will pay money for it and you don't have to compromise your integrity. You don't have to compromise your intent. You don't have to compromise the quality of what you're trying to do. The internet has become full of heat, very little light. So I'm not interested in contributing towards more heat. I want to pick my openings more carefully and only put forward stuff if I really believe that it's not just contributing towards heat. It's actually hopefully contributing towards making some light or, or, or offering some light. Azhar Osman is a stand-up comedian, actor, writer and producer based out of Chicago. He has worked on a variety of shows including Rami as a staff writer and co-executive producer and the upcoming Disney Marvel series Miss Marvel on screen in a recurring role. He is also the co-creator of Allah Made Me Funny, the official Muslim comedy tour, the groundbreaking stand-up comedy tour that found mainstream success in 2008. In this episode, we'll be traveling on an introspective and spiritual journey, picking apart the idea of Hollywood and mainstream media, how the art we create fits into our spiritual, metaphysical journeys, exploring Sufism, and so much more. Hope you enjoy this episode, and welcome back to 786 Boulevard. Azhar, salam man, how are you doing? Walaikum salam, Nuri. Great, I'm doing great. How are you doing, brother? Yeah, we're doing good. We're doing good. I appreciate you. Thank you so much for joining us and taking time out of your busy schedule uh, to join us. You are uh, a man of many, many, many talents, as hopefully we'll, we'll, we'll go over uh, in this uh, episode. Um, and it's uh, great to see uh, all your creativity uh, and how it kind of intertwines with your spirituality, something hopefully which we'll explore. In this episode, I want to start off uh, first with something you're uh, being a part of soon, which is Miss Marvel. Um, and uh, it is definitely something that I would say that a lot of us are looking forward to. Um, can you tell us a bit about, you know, getting cast in the show and what we can expect to see uh, from it when it comes out? Um, Bismillah. I mean, well, first of all, thank you, man, for um, bringing that up. Um, you know, I'm a little bit leery to talk about it only because I'm under a lot of... All those NDAs. Yeah, I'm under a lot of uh, restrictions, and I know they have a big publicity blitz planned, you know, naturally, for before the show drops. My understanding is the show is supposed to drop uh, later this year, mm -hmm. so think of, you know, probably November, December time frame. Now we're in mid-July, so realistically, they're going to start doing some press and all, all that, I'm sure, in the next couple months. So I can't really talk about it, to be honest with you. I mean, it's public that I'm in it. Um, they haven't even announced what part I play. I can just say right. that I play, a, you know, I play a recurring role in the show. So I'm in, in about half the episodes. You know, I provide comedic, uh, like sort of, I play a comedic character. I provide comic relief in the show. Uh, as far as what to expect, I mean... You know, it's a pretty, it has a pretty, Marvel in general obviously has a pretty hardcore fan base. And then Miss Marvel, you know, has a very 
devoted and rabid fan base, 100%. which I did not know about. I'm not a big comic book guy. Personally. You're about to find out, bro. <laughs> to be perfectly honest with you, I'm not a big comic book guy. So, yeah, just how it came about was, you know, it's funny because, you know, I think I have like a lot of creative people that end up in quote unquote show business mm-hmm. for lack of a better term, because that's a pretty undefined term. And, you know, like you guys are making a podcast. Are you in show business? I hope so. I don't know. Bobby? You make it. <laughs> Do you hope so? Is that your intention? Because I don't know. I mean, I mean, we don't know, make, right now you're making. We're not making money out of this. Ten, we're not in show business. Um, we might be in right, show. So you just, right now you just have a show. Right. Yeah. Well, actually, this is, a cliche, this is a cliche thing that, you know, people in show business talk about. But, you know, I never heard it until I got in this, this crazy world, which is that a lot of pretty people don't realize that, you know, it's called show business for a reason. Mm-hmm. Half of it is the show. And the other half is business. Mm. And, uh, you know, sometimes your creative vision, your artistic sensibility can become, you know, affected, if not outright corrupted. The moment you introduce commerce and, you know, financial matters into the art. So Chappelle had a nice take. He says, you know, when art meets commerce is when it becomes entertaining. Mm. So, you know, your podcast right now, is it, for the culture is it for the art or is it to make a bag of money or is it to do both down the road hmm. you know depends who you ask what's that depends who, depends you, who ask. you ask i think his name wants to make tons of money i'm just bored. i'm, 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 I'm in bored. It for the bag bro <laughs> i already sussed out i already sussed out the difference between the two. <laughs> do, you, do you do you do you struggle with that at all i mean as an i guess quote-unquote artist is that something you, you, you fear, um, is that something you struggle with, uh, the relationship between art and, and business? Because I think in, in this day and age, every artist, entertainer, has to, to an extent, market themselves to get the art out there, right? So, I mean, where do you kind of find the balance with that? I mean, yes, I do struggle with that. I continue to struggle with that. I've always struggled with that. I still struggle with that. I, mm. I don't like Hollywood. Mm. Show business. The business side of show business that in my judgment tends to corrupt um, intentions. It tends to corrupt the the purity of the artist's vision. You know, when you just have other parties that get in the mix and their their motives are very clear, they want to make money. And that's fine. You know, they're, they're capitalists. They, they, they are in engaged in this thing that's called the entertainment industry, right? Mm-hmm. Again, it's entertainment industry. It's an industry. It's show business. These are business people who want to make money off your creativity so that shit always bothers me man i don't Mm -hmm. like being in a position where you know to serve someone else's financial motive you have to compromise or or you know wrestle with your own artistic impulse and desire and intent and then either water it down or sell out or change so there's always a tension man there's always a tension I would say that, you know, where, where I've landed in this, in my life anyway, is, you know, to attempt, and again, this is just an intention. Sometimes I feel that I'm more successful at it than other times. But the intention anyway is to, you know, never corrupt the artistic motive and to figure out a way to operate where, you know, the art is so cool and so good that it is commercially viable and mm. you don't and people will pay money for it and you don't have to compromise your 
integrity. You don't have to compromise your intent. You don't have to compromise the quality of what you're trying to do. You know, it doesn't always work out that way, but that's the goal anyway. And that's the game. I would say that's in some ways the game. You know, you could just be a, a non-commercial artist. You guys can just put out this podcast and keep making it for the rest of your lives for free. Mm-hmm. Never put ads on it. Never charge people. Maybe take gifts, donations. You know, the gift economy is something I believe in a lot. Mm-hmm. The gift economy is uh, based on this book by a guy called Charles Eisenstein that is worth really worth reading. It's called Sacred Economics. Mm-hmm. And in Sacred Economics, you know, he gets into this whole theory, thesis and this whole theory of, you know, a so-called gift economy. What would that look like? Where people are, are operating not based on just uh, money, the exchange of money, but rather operating based on two principles. Give what you can, take what you need, and the principle of fair exchange. You know, rather than determining uh, price based on supply and demand and just trying to gouge people when you have the leverage, instead, approaching pricing from a fairness framing. Like, Mm. what's fair? And then being happy to get what's fair and to pay what's fair, rather than having to overpay because of market forces or get underpaid because of market forces. So anyhow, this gets into critiques of capitalism and all that, which is beyond the scope of what we're talking about. But I'll just say, long story short, I mean, definitely there's a tension there when it comes to trying to make art that is commercial art. And I've said this before in other interviews, like I just feel that so much of content these days. I mean, my God, we're drowning in content. Right, so many podcasts, so many streaming shows, so many YouTubers, so many Twitch streamers, so many Instagram influencers, TikTokers. It just never ends. And in every moment, right, while we've been talking for the last 20 minutes, hundreds, if not thousands of, I don't know how many hours of content has been uploaded, right? It's just we're drowning in content. So my feeling towards it is sort of like the, the internet has become full of heat, hmm. very, very little light. The internet internet content is mostly heat. It's very little light. So I'm not interested in contributing towards more heat. Hmm. <laughs> I want to pick my openings more carefully and only put forward stuff if I really believe that it's not just contributing towards heat. It's actually, hopefully, contributing towards making some light or, or, or offering some light. Hmm. And that's hard, man. And it's, it's it just requires me to maintain a really high standard. I don't always hit that standard you know i have to make a living as well right um so many so many wisdoms i've gained from from uh you know mentors in the game i mean Chappelle is definitely somebody who i don't want to make i'm not trying to name drop him but yeah i've learned a lot from him you know i've learned a lot from him and he told me many times you know, he'd be like listen you know azahar he'd be like uh <laughs> azahar, listen there's a difference between making art and making a living hmm it's profound, man. There's a difference between making art and making money. Yeah. So you know, I've been offered stuff. Sometimes I just did it for the money. I did it for the for the opportunity. I did it for the for the resume building. You know, we're also building our resumes. You know, right. So it's like you know, I was in a show um, on Amazon called Patriot. You could check that out. I was in two seasons of the show. It's actually a really cool show. It's well made. It's extremely well written. You know, the guy who created the show is a genius. Like I, I thoroughly enjoyed all my working on it, definitely. And I got, you know, I got paid, I got credits and all that. But, you know, gun to the head, like, is that the kind of storyline and the kind of premise that I'm proud of being part of? You know, it's Hollywood content. It's Hollywood you know, content. 
it, it, it's so interesting, interesting you mentioned that because even you know recently I was looking into kind of trying to get our, our numbers up on this on this podcast on YouTube and something I realized about the YouTube world is that all it seems like all uh, so much content is created specifically to garner views and attention um, and you know the way that kind of drives uh, the content you create means that you're not just creating as you said from a place of uh, or as you do as you alluded to from a place of truth almost. Um, but you're creating because you want people to click on your video. You want people to click on, uh, you know, uh, 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 click, 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 click on what you're doing and essentially, I guess, ultimately monetize it, right? Um, and that's definitely something, a conversation I've been having with myself as well uh, this past year because, like you said, we all got to eat, right? We've got to make money. Uh, but at the same time, we don't want to do what we love. Um, so I guess finding the, the challenge between that um, is really difficult. And I just, I guess it's very refreshing to see uh, someone like yourself who is... Uh, in the industry, still having those conversations uh, with yourself, uh, and I definitely uh, really appreciate that. Um, yeah, I mean, and let me let me add to that. I mean, like most of my peers think I'm a snowflake. You know? <laughs> they think I'm way too sensitive about these things, and maybe they're right. But you know, I just uh, I just really keep keep it top of mind that you know, like you have to die. Yeah, hundred percent stand before god like that's not a joke to me that's not something that's ever far away from my mind and so you know i have to every choice that i make creatively and artistically and career-wise i do have to weigh that against a very real a very real and heavy truth which is okay i have to i, I may be asked about this hmm. you know what's my answer and if i'm selling out to get a bag of money you know, at least I want to be clear that that's what I'm doing. I don't want to be lying to myself and trying to create some story to convince myself of some, some bullshit that I know is not true. Hmm. But I just want to feel good about myself and I want to justify what I'm doing. Like, I'm not interested in living that kind of life. I did that. I, did, I lived like that for many years. And I was, I was out of integrity, I would say. And it took a real big life-altering set of experiences. Like, I got hit by a car Damn. in 2016. Wow. Yeah, I was crossing the street. I hit my car in August 2016. And that was a life-altering experience for me, man. So really, honestly, I would say that if single event, probably more than anything else, was a massive eye-opener about many of the big themes that we're talking about. You know, just the seriousness of life, how real it is. Like, I feel like I'm in, a bo in the bonus round already. Like, in some ways, I've, I thought I'd die. Wow. In that car accident, I thought I died. So I had like a very, um, you know, I had an experience that is probably beyond words and, and I wouldn't feel comfortable even trying to do justice talking about it in this podcast. But I'll just say that, you know, it was like the first domino that led to a whole series of dominoes that radically reconstituted my whole life, uh, my personal life, my professional life. Um, you know, the three, I look at life as three big buckets health, wealth, family. Hmm. Uh, that's what I was taught by, you know, some of my mentors and my teachers, especially religious teachers. You know, life is, is three buckets, health, wealth, family. And know that God will test you in one or two or all three of those buckets. And then what I was taught is, you know, if you are so lucky that God does not test you in your health, in your wealth, or in your family, like we all know people like just out there killing it, killing <laughs> life. I know then, a few of those guys. No, no, yeah, then, then know that God will send you someone in your life who is being tested in their health, wealth, and or family. 
And then your test becomes, do you help them? Oh, that's deep, man. Oh, I felt that. But there's no escaping. Yeah, there's no escaping this. This is the this is life. When we say life is a test, this is the test. So when I think about my life that way, health, wealth, family, it's like I'm, I'm working on a stand-up joke right now. <laughs> you know, <it's> like, <laughs> health, wealth, family. I'm over three. <laughs> I'm, I'm fat. <laughs> my kids don't talk to me. <laughs> I'm broke. <laughs> so. <laughs> I mean, there's something really funny there, but I haven't worked it out yet. But anyway, long story short, man, you know, this is, uh, to me, at some point, the lines totally started to get blurred. Mm-hmm. You know, when you're an artist, like, if you're really trying to be real about, you know, servicing that artistic impulse that's that's from God, it's creativity is a gift from God, then at some point, the lines start to blur, you know, it's like, well... Your personal life, your professional life, your art, your work, your art becomes your work. Your work becomes your art, you know, and you end up kind of in this weird existence where, you know, negotiating the boundaries of, of, of what you do want to do and why and what you don't want to do and why not. You know, it can become a very tricky, very tricky and slippery slope. Mm. So... All of this was a branch of my answer to your question about Miss <laughs> Marvel. Beautiful. Well, that's uh, a sign of things to come. It means we'll have a very long but very uh, intriguing episode, yeah. uh, inshallah. I'm very um, grateful. Let, let, me, let me also say I'm pretty grateful. You know, I talk mad shit about like advertising and mega media companies that just are slaves to advertising. That's all they care about, making ad money, making mm-hmm. subscription money. They're, they're, again, they're interested in the money. They really could care less. This was a big unlock for me, man. Understanding what mass media is, understanding what television is. You know, there's a great book. You have to read it if you're interested in, if you're interested, especially in a serious way, to pivoting into pivoting towards a, a career in, in entertainment content, whether mm-hmm. it's as a YouTuber or making a podcast or, for that matter, the TV film side or music or whatever. You know, understanding what mass media is. Mm-hmm. I would say it's like a necessary component. You know, it's like, uh, and, and and this is true for any rational thinking person. It's especially true for a believing Muslim. If you're a believing Muslim who's serious about trying to follow deen, religion, real prophetic teaching, then, you know, you actually have an obligation to learn about any field that you want to enter. You know what I mean? You're not obligated to learn about things that you don't, you're not involved in. Right. But if you want, if you guys are making a podcast now, it's like, okay, well, you're now you're in it, bro. You're already doing it. So you better learn about, you know, media and what is media. And what you were talking about earlier, like everybody wants to get clicks and attention. It's like, yeah, buddy, that's the game. That's what it is. It's we're, basically everybody making content now is like an attention whore just trying to get your attention. And this, there's books written about this. You know, the, the Attention Merchants is a fantastic book. I forgot the guy's name. Wu, John Wu, something Wu. You know, the Attention Merchants. How all of these aggregators, YouTube, Instagram, you know, Facebook, they are aggregating content, but they're also the network that has all the users coming to watch it. And they are just taking the lion's share of the, of the dollar value generated by that by the by that attention Hmm. and you as the creator quote unquote are just getting 
you know, pennies on the on the dollar. So are you okay with that? Is that right? Is that how it should be? Right? You know, the classic uh, Most Def had a great line, uh, Yasin Bey, where he was like, look, man, would, would you rather be Eminem and sell 10 million albums and get a dollar an album? Or would you rather be Yasin Bey and sell a million albums but get $10 an album? Hmm. They don't want the money. If you're in it for the money, is the money is interchangeable. But you have 10 million albums out, 10 million fans versus a million fans. Celebrity status versus just like, you know, a known artist. Hmm. And there's levels of celebrity and fame, right? I mean, that's all the cool thing is like, I'm not a famous guy, but I get to spend time. I consider myself what's called fame adjacent. <laughs> that's a term I stole from a friend of mine. Uh, You're at every uh, party, basically. Religious party. What's that? You're at every party. You're there in the background somewhere. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. I can get I, exactly. I can be in the room, but it's like nobody knows who I am except those <laughs> who, who, uh, who. As long as the people who matter to me know who I am, it's like that's yeah. that scratches my nefs, my my ego, my ego itch, you know. But 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 the but the point I want to make is, being a famous person, becoming a celebrity, and then the the cost that, that comes along with being a known celebrity person in the world and then you go out with them and it's just like my god this they're just being mobbed in the street and people stopping them every 10 feet to take a picture and hmm. autographs and this like you're under a microscope all the time you know the fishbowl syndrome as it's known it's like you're inside a fishbowl and people just gazing at you and you're constantly under the microscope you're constant your life is under scrutiny like you end up making a trade to become a famous person Hmm. The trade is your celebrity. You get celebrity for your privacy, hmm. and you're now literally a public figure. And there's different laws even that apply to public figures, right? The things that the tabloids can say about you, the things that people, your enemies can say about you, hmm. it's very different if you're a public figure versus a private person, or if you're between those two things, which is called a semi-public figure. So this is stuff. Maybe I, I'm getting too technical because I studied this also as a lawyer. I used to be a lawyer before I got into all this creative work. But, you know, this is real, man. This is the real world. And a lot of people don't understand the trade that they're about to make before they've already made it. Mm. And you can't undo that trade. You know, you cannot undo that trade. If you become a famous person and people know who you are, you can't become back. Un mm -hmm. You can't undo that transaction and get your privacy back. So you have, do you realize what you've traded, you know? So I've been, and then, and then among the famous people I know, it's like there's layers to it, right? There's, there's, all, there's altitude. There's the mega, mega celebrity, crazy, like, and then there's like, oh, yeah, you're famous, but like you could still kind of keep to yourself. And then there's like, you know, you have your audience, but you can go in the world and nobody knows who you are. And there's different costs and benefits to each of those things, you know? Mm. So anyhow, I've become a student in many ways of just like this type of, the, the, the realities of this world, of this showbiz world of Hollywood and how people operate in that. Hollywood is the name of a town, but it's also the name of an industry. It's the name of an attitude. It's the name of a, a mentality, and it's the name of a lifestyle. And uh, I hate all of them. Wow. <laughs> I'm not about any of that. I'm not about that shit. Man. It's very vapid. It's very vacuous. It's very um, concerned with uh, hype, not substance. It's all heat. No light. I really, I really like that perspective of of, of uh, you know creating 
light. I think that's just such an interesting way to look at making uh, art, be it film or, or comedy or uh, whatever kind of art it is. Um, I know when you started um, uh, uh, Allah, the Allah Made Me Funny tour, which is, you know, something all of us can look back to as, uh, I was reading that you were referred to as a uh, uh, beginning a post 9-11 Muslim stand-up comedy which I don't know if you're too happy with that term but I, I, I did read it um, but it was very um, groundbreaking and, 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 and very um, you know uh, very very original I think one thing that, I, that kind of interested me, interested me and intrigued me um, was when you started it you were first doing it at uh, Muslim conventions like ISNA and I guess Muslim locations and then you kind of expanded it to doing it you know uh, as a tour uh, worldwide I feel like there's a distinction between maybe it's just in my head but muslim media and mainstream media so for example you have your islam channels your peace tvs and you know uh, th that kind of media and then you also then you have your mbcs and, and, your, and your hollywood do you feel like there is a difference uh, between these two worlds uh, and do you feel like uh you know muslims who create uh content can be trapped in either one of these worlds or is it just something i'm completely making up I mean, it's a good question. I think I, I spent a lot of time myself thinking about that. Um, you know, just a couple of quick corrections just on the history. Please. Because right? Allah made me funny. We started that. Preacher Moss was actually the creator of that tour. He mm -hmm. invited me to be a co-creator on that tour. And that was in 04. Um, the tour was post 9-11, but Preacher Moss had been doing comedy since the 90s. Right. I started doing stand-up before 9-11 and it was just the idea to team up and produce this um muslim themed comedy show that idea was was post 9-11 mm. but both of both of us had already been doing comedy from before 9-11 so 9-11 was really in many ways kind of like this political event this historic event that suddenly created a lot of interest uh around hearing muslim voices mm. you know it was almost like born out of the desire to like hear from the quote-unquote enemy you know because muslims have been painted as this enemy if not all muslims and certainly their their uh religion and their and their uh, lifestyle their, their civilization and that feeds into a lot of very dangerous and uh, i would say outdated views of the world you know this idea of the east and the west the muslim mm -hmm. world versus the west you know these are these are in many ways kind of like thought constructs that have not really they they have you know they have some bearing in reality i'm not denying that 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 they're based on something real at the same time they end up reinforcing a lot of kind of ideas that are not real you know like i'm sure you live in the uk i mean this Every time I go to the UK and hear anybody having this type of discourse around, like, you know, well, will Muslims integrate into British society? It's like the, the mayor of London is Muslim. What, the, what are you talking about? 10% of London is Muslim. They haven't integrated yet. Will Muslims integrate into Europe? Have you heard of Bosnia? Like, what, what the hell are you talking about? There's, well, Algeria, Albania? Like, Muslims are in Europe, bro. What are you talking about? Muslims have been in Europe. The, 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 the Pope used to pay a jizya to the caliph. I don't know mm -hmm. if you know this. You go, you get into, you get into the history of, of the uh, complicated relationship between Islam, the world of Islam, and the world of Christendom throughout the medieval and, and the Middle Ages. The, you know, it's a very complicated history, and this idea of otherizing, 
Western people otherize Muslims. Oh, they're so different. They're so weird. They have these funny foods. They dress funny. They smell weird. They have different, you know, weird, uh, difficult to say names with a lot of khaz and haz. And it's like, listen, you can otherize all you want. History is, the real actual history is, Western European Christendom did not find Muslims and their religion, Islam, to be problematic for Europe because they saw Muslims as so different. On the contrary, the real history is European Christendom found Muslims and Islam to be problematic because Islam was too close for comfort. It's like, bro, we, we have, we're the sequel. Islam is the sequel, bro. What are you talking about? It's a religion that confirms everything that was given to Jesus Christ, given to Moses. And then it's like, yo, the, the piece y'all are missing is the final messenger of God. But yeah, we, we accept everything that is in the Bible and the Torah. It's like, yo, this is a trippy thing, bro. The, the, if you're a Christian trying to hear, it's like, bro, time out, time out. Because either you're on the truth or you're the devil, right? right. It's like, and that's their answer. That, that they, they, they cannot account for who the messenger of God is, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Nor can they explain the Quran. The Quran is the original blockchain, baby. The Quran is the original blockchain. Distributed ledger, you cannot, it's immutable. You cannot change the record. Millions of people have memorized it. You cannot get enough people together to conspire to change the words of the Quran. That's the whole basis of blockchain technology. That's what distributed ledger is. So the very things that make you so obsessed about Bitcoin, it's like, you idiot. Why don't you understand about the history of Quran? This is what why Muslims are so convinced that the Quran is the word of God. Like, it's not a, it's not irrational. It's not anti-rational. It's super yeah. rational. It's mm -hmm. super rational. It's like, yo, your rationality can never encompass something that is beyond this world. Anyhow, we're going to get into a khutbah, but it is Friday. Oh, yeah. You've also become my sheikh, by the way. Just letting I, you know. I, so I will, I will say this. <laughs> I am not taking Azra to Speaker's Corner with me. <laughs> no, you should take him. Speak, speaker's I'm Corner. Not taking speaker's Corner, speak. basically, speaker's Corner, basically, is, a, is this historic site uh, in London, uh, about near central London, where a lot of people come and just kind of like voice their opinions. Um, and it's basically become this... Um, now a debate battleground between Muslims, uh, Christians, atheists. Uh, they debate politics. There's also a lot of sectarian debates there. Um, and it, it's just become this really, um, it's become basically a battle without uh, fists, uh, if you call it that. Um, so without I, what? It's, it's a battle without fists or without guns. It's a battle of, of words and, 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 and uh, in, intellect. Um, so I would argue, wow. actually, I think that as well, the perfect person to take the speaker's corner. <laughs> Verbal, so it sounds like it's verbal MMA. Basically. It's verbal. It does get uh, based on some of the videos I've seen. It does get pretty. Uh, I've seen some people attacked. Um, so yeah, I want to go there immediately. That sounds <laughs> yeah, if you um, ever come down, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll take you. Guess the one. All, all of all of this was a branch of the, answering your question about mainstream quote unquote versus Muslim media. Right? But like like genuinely, so sorry if I can before you carry on. Uh, it, it's a question that really intrigues me a lot because I work a lot in quote-unquote Islamic media uh, I'm, I'm a freelancer a lot of my clients are uh, Islamic channels Islamic organizations Islamic charities uh, etc and I feel like there is this um, I, I feel like the world of you know uh, being a cinematographer on a film set or being a camera assistant on a on a tv series is a completely different world to the world I'm in for whatever reason um, so I guess you know would you say there's a difference in these two worlds would you say that uh, uh, you know uh, there are um, you know, uh, you're either in one or the other, and what is that kind of like the contradiction between the two? Yeah, or the, I mean, or the relationship the way I think about it is a little bit like what's that? Sorry, the relationship between the two, not the contradiction. 
Yeah, right. I mean, I would say this is a little bit like um, like Damon John starting FUBU. You familiar with FUBU? You lost me. How's name? Do you know? It's an American thing. Maybe it's an American. Yeah, I know FUBU. FUBU. So FUBU is a streetwear brand created by this entrepreneur, Damon John, yeah. black American entrepreneur in the textile and apparel category. FUBU, F-U-B-U, stands for For Us, By Us. Mm, okay. So it was born out of his observation that it was born out of his observation that like you know there's a certain style to streetwear that Black Americans want to wear. Right. There are right. designers who are not really designing for that sensibility. Let me just launch a brand that is for us by us. Let me employ people from my community. Let me create products and for my community. Let me circulate the dollars within my community. You know, there's a lot of tangible and intangible benefits that accrue from super serving a niche. He built this FUBU brand into a billion, multi-billion dollar business. And then he ended up being a shark on Shark Tank. So it's sort of like, okay, well, is he a niche guy or is he a mainstream guy? Hmm. Did he build his niche so big that it suddenly it's like, you know, how big does a niche have to be before it's not a niche anymore? Hmm. And I would also say that, you know, the more time I've spent around you know again show business quote unquote and when i say show business they're sort of like show business proper you know the networks and the brands that we're kind of used to considering as part of the ecosystem of hollywood versus all of those brands that are kind of on the fringes of hollywood and they do the same thing they make content they distribute content they market content but because it's not done in this so-called mainstream way it is considered niche hmm. for example for example, there's a whole world of Christian media in the United mm. States. Christian ra rappers, Christian rock bands, Christian movies, right? They call them faith-based. Hollywood calls them faith-based content. But you go look up the numbers and it's like, yo, some of these Christian rappers have as many album sales, if not more, than so-called mainstream rappers. Wow. Go look at the download numbers. Go look at the actual figures. Look up some of these rappers on Insta or whatever these social media metrics are. They have as many followers and fans, if not more, than many people you've heard of that are so-called mainstream artists. So what you start to realize when you when you kind of get past the, the intellectual framing and the cognitive frames that are put on this content, right, which is an editorial decision being made by human beings... When you retire those and you just look at the sheer numbers, it's like, bro, just because you call it niche or an affinity market or whatever doesn't mean anything. We have to be clear on what the game is that you're playing to begin with. If you just want to make a podcast that you want Muslims to listen to, there's almost 2 billion Muslims in the world. Mm. Half of them speak English. That's the niche. So... I don't even know what the, the term, the terminology is, is inherently kind of loaded with a lot of assumptions. Mm. Now, that being said, if I accept this terminology and I accept this frame, let's say I was a Christian trying to make Christian movies, right? Then it's sort of like there's this whole independent ecosystem of, uh, you know, Christian producers, Christian directors, Christian independent production companies, whatever, whatever. 
and I can make industry quality content and I can hire, you know, mainstream actors, again, quote unquote, mainstream actors who are represented by the same Hollywood agencies and blah, blah, blah. Like I still make a piece of mainstream content. This, this storyline happens to be, oh, a guy who lost faith and then found Jesus or whatever. And like, is that mainstream or is that niche? Mm. I don't know who, who gets to decide. Mm. So what are the metrics by which we're deciding? Oh, if it's on a billboard on the side of the road and it's on the magazine at the checkout aisle in the grocery store, and if the song is playing in the grocery store, then it's mainstream. Mm. But if you're not on the billboard and you're not on the bus and you're not on the magazine, even though you might have more sales on the internet, you're not mainstream. Okay. I mean, I guess somebody is deciding those metrics, but there's a lot of, you know, kind of fake. These are just, a lot of this is fake. Mm. So I think what we mean when we say mainstream is really this idea of acceptance by white people. That's interesting. Wow. That's I, think, I think that's basically code. We use the term mainstream, non-white people. Black people have this, pro this, this, this framing. I would say it's a problem. You know, Latinos have it. Brown people of all sorts have it. You know, this idea of like, oh, I want to cross over. I want to be quote unquote mainstream. It's like, yeah, what you're really saying is I want to sell to white people. I want white people to accept me. I want them to listen to my music. I want them to watch my content. I want to I want to get those white dollars because white dollars are more valuable to me than brown dollars. Mm -hmm. Or pounds, I guess, in your case. Mm -hmm. So I don't have any comments on that, man. You know which you know which side of the spectrum I'm on with that. Yeah, so this is this is another aspect of the conversation that often gets glossed over is what are we even talking about when we talk about so-called mainstream versus niche? Now, that being said, I have worked many years in the Muslim, you know, I call it the Muslim bubble. Mm. Making content for the Muslim bubble, servicing the Muslim bubble. Um, bubbles. Bubbles, yeah, exactly. There are bubbles, in fact, right? There's the, you know, there's the Sunni Shia thing. There's the, you know, the age thing. There's ethnic, ethnic breakdowns, right? There's the Arabs, there's the South Asians. So there's all these communities and all these little bubbles. And each one of them is really a niche, okay? But being clear on what it is you're trying to do in the first place as a creative person, what is it that I'm trying, who am I talking to? Who is my audience? Mm. Right? A lot of the stuff I'm, and, and by the way, a lot of this is stuff that's top of mind because I am actually very actively figuring out what I want to do in the content space either making a podcast or making an album or making a special or whatever. And as I, you know, go through my various uh, options and I look at the various collaborators I could, I could partner with and I have to really put under the microscope, like what is it exactly I'm trying to do? Hmm. What am I trying to say? Who do I want to say this to? And then how do I want to get in front of those people? And then I want to pick my, my, uh, my path and the partners more tactically to get to what I want to get to strategically rather than be beholden to any of these frameworks that I don't even accept to begin with. I mean, I just mm -hmm. think that the wrong headed framings. And, and by the way, if Islam is not mainstream right now, my God, are you kidding me? Islam is going <laughs> super mainstream, you know, Muslim culture, Muslim, uh, what Muslims believe, what Muslims are about, how Muslims talk, how Muslims dress. This is all becoming, you know, quote unquote, mainstream now. Mm -hmm. So Islamic sensibilities are beginning to overwhelm the culture, which is, by the way, I think a big part of what, 
you know, a lot of right-wing white people are actually are really upset about. Right. But what they're really upset about is like, bro, your your time is over. Have you seen that uh, movie, The White Tiger? I have not. No. Has you, know you know what I'm talking about? Has Have you seen uh, it, White Tiger? I don't, I don't it sounds familiar, but I haven't seen it though. Uh, it's a Netflix original based on a book called The White Tiger, a novel, which is fantastic. Definitely check it out. And uh, there's a great line in there. You know, it's basically about this Indian. Uh, it's a story of a poor Indian, basically wretch, you know, just servant on the lowest, lowest caste. And uh, his path. I won't oh, I have it. seen it. Never mind. Yeah, there's a great line in there where he's just like, you know, yeah. the age of the white man is over. It's the age of the brown man and the yellow man. Yeah, yeah. Priyanka Chopra's in there. And, yeah, yeah. and it's in India, China, and what's coming in the next century. You know, this is, of course, bro, if I was white, I would be scared. I'd be pissed. I'd be like, yo, you're trying to tell me we had a good run and our run is kind of over? It's like, yeah, bro, that's what's happening. <laughs> yeah, I've heard, I've heard, I've heard Rizamid. I've heard Rizamid rap about it, about uh, the Earth becoming a, round, a brown planet. Yeah, inevitability of it. Um, which yeah, I exactly. Sorry, sorry, I'm not sorry. And if anything, it's like Islam in the in all of that. You know, when it gets into power and it gets turned into this like me versus you, us versus them, domination, which has to do with power. That's the part where you know, to me, it's less interesting. Like I'm more interested in it from a deeply spiritual point of view. You know, Islam. The essential teaching of of the notion that you know God made everything, including all of us, and that each of us is a human soul that happens to be put in a physical body while we're down here on Earth, but never forget you're actually the soul, and it is at that level of soul that all of us are standing before God as equals. Then you really start to see like, oh, that's what Malcolm X meant that Islam is the is the cure. To the racism that is that is to to the cancer that is racism. Hmm. He said Islam is the cure to the racism uh, of the United States because racism is a cancer. Well, at the heart of racism is this arrogance: I am better than you. You know, I'm white. I'm better than non-white people, or whatever, hmm. or black supremacy. I'm black. I'm better than non-black people. Or by the way, Muslim supremacy. Hundred percent. You know, yeah. what is Islamism? Right? What is Islamism hmm. other than? This bullshit idea that oh, there's Muslim and kafir, and yep. Muslim life is inherently more valuable than kafir life. What the, what the fuck are you talking about, bro? Mm. You made this up. This is not religion. This is not Islam. This is not prophetic. This is not from Quran. This is your horse shit that you guys made up, and I divorced myself from it, and I am an enemy of it. Mm. So this is a mind-bending thing to realize. Like, wait, so you're telling me, like, one of my teachers, he just in passing one time, he's like, "Well, as you know, Azhar, most Muslims go to hell." And I was like, "Wait, excuse me, what?" Like, yeah, they go there and they them will be taken out, right? God will forgive people, but illa masha Allah, unless God wills otherwise, this is the game, bro. So mm -hmm. we have we this this Muslim supremacy, Jewish supremacy, which is what Zionism is. Hindu supremacy, which is what Hindutva and BJP is. Everybody's got this sickness. I'm better than you. We're better than other people, inherently. This is wrong. And Islam, real prophetic religion, came to destroy exactly this lie. Hmm. So people who get this, they understand that Islam is, is a salvation, bro, for, for some, so many of the sicknesses of, of modern society. And those who are caught up in the identity politics of it all, and power politics and domination and all this stuff, you know, that stuff is just not interesting to me. If anything, it's like that's the kind of stuff I want to critique and talk about through art. 
and, and you know that's hopefully what I'm what I'm what I'm working on. I, I do want to say one thing that we started Please. before we I think started taping. I was saying to you guys that I I listened to some of the old back catalog of the podcast, and I'm not sure if it was New Nuri or if it was Hasnain. I think it was New Nuri, and you were sort of pontificating about how like you know it's a valid question to start out asking you know is there even is it even right for Islam to be in Hollywood? You know that was Nuri. Yeah. That was you, wasn't it? That, that was me and my okay. religious. No, that was Nuri. Oh, that was Nuri. Yeah, yeah. And, I, I, I don't, I don't speak like that. Yeah, and I, and I just, I just, I just wanted to actually make you aware of something you may not know. Please, you know, and because I learned this, you know, later in life, and I was shocked actually. You know, you can look this up. There's books about the history of Hollywood, and pretty much every historian, major historian of filmmaking, modern filmmaking, and history of Hollywood. And specifically, theatrical film distribution, like projecting of films on a screen, which is the birth of quote-unquote Hollywood. They all agree that the origin of modern cinema, theatrical film exhibition, is actually shadow puppetry. Hmm. The shadow puppet theater, which is projection of light on a screen, shadows behind it being produced by by the puppets, a gamelan orchestra playing the live soundtrack, basically, and the voice actors doing the voices. This is the precursor to what becomes film. Mm. That's our shit, dog. Mm. That's Muslim. That Muslims of Southeast Asia, of Java, Sunan Kali Jaga, the Wali Songo, the nine Sufi saints of Indonesia. They are the inventors, and specifically Sunan Kali Jaga is the inventor of what we what we regard to be you know, this kind of evolved form of shadow puppetry, Suluk Wayang, that then goes on to become modern cinema. So when I relate to being a film, yeah, so when I relate to being in TV and film, I don't feel like an outsider trying to come in and carve out my space in this thing that I'm an alien to. I don't, I refuse that framing and I reject that framing completely. It's like, dog, this is, you know, wisdom is the lost property of the believer. Wherever he finds it, it's his. Telling stories through moving pictures with a soundtrack and dialogue, that's that's 100% a Muslim activity. It's just a question of what you use it for. Are you telling a didactic story to teach a morality play, for example? Mm. Or are you using that technology to you know, make a porn film, mm. for example? Mm. So the, the, the instrumentalities are agnostic to the content. But make no mistake about it. These instrumentalities are Muslim innovations. They are Muslim inventions. And we, if we embrace them, we must embrace them with the energy that is like, brah, this is ours. This this is a Muslim thing. I don't feel like an outsider trying to figure out how to find my way in this business. No, 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 no. Y'all stole this as you did everything else from us. And I'm here to reclaim this. This is mine. Using films to tell stories, that belongs to us. I do that as a proud Muslim grounded in tradition, not somebody who's trying to negotiate my way into it from an outsider framing. And this is a very important thing to realize because I think it'll shift your entire dynamic and your entire energy towards doing what you do. It's mm-hmm. not that these are new inventions that came into the world and now we have to figure out how to, uh, right. uh, you know, with them. It's not, that's not true at all. Uh, these Muslims, so I wanted to make con- conclude one other point I was making about working both in the Muslim bubble versus working in so-called, quote-unquote, mainstream entertainment. And I will say this, man. 
you know, Muslim TV channels in the UK that I've, you know, I've, I've, I've been on those channels. I've been interacting with those, with those people. You know, one thing that is sadly often the case really just has to do with quality control. Right. Yes. Agreed. That's really what it is. You know, is, is, if there was just greater quality control in the niche media, we would, I think, not necessarily look at quote unquote mainstream media as being inherently superior or more important. It's just that we, we regard mainstream media to have more uh, gatekeepers and more boundaries and therefore more quality control. And so we tend to think that the Muslim bubble stuff is just lower quality. So I found myself in this path where I was like, you know what? I want to remain fiercely independent as an artist, but I want to make content that's industry quality. So I call this industry. Mm, love it. Love remaining it. indie, but producing industry quality stuff. And when I opportunistically can collaborate with the machinery that is mainstream entertainment, such as being in Miss Marvel as an actor or, or, you know, writing on the Rami show as a writer producer or whatever. It's like, okay, cool. I'll do that because it is mutually beneficial. It gives me experience. It gives me more momentum in my career. It opens up more doors, but make no mistake about it. Like I'm not ever for a moment, you know, I'm hilta nahi hai. Hum kabhi hilta nahi hai. Ye hum humko kabhi nahi hila sakte. You know, dil dil jo hai bilkul isan the haq inshallah. I mean, may God make us thabit qulubana ala. No, you need you need subtitles for that. I love it. But no, no, I'm good. I got it. Don't worry. Yeah. Um Hassan, just just a quick Hassan, question. Hassan, I'm sorry. Before you jump in your quiz, he made so many good points. I've got to just like give like a post neuro analysis. Um no, but honestly, I think with this podcast like and then I remember speaking to Hasnain about this before we started it. It was all just about us, especially, I guess, me. I don't want to speak to Hasnain, but me trying to, I guess, better understand my relationship or the relationship between what I love to consume and what I love to enjoy and spirituality. So as someone who grew up religiously on film, it wasn't until very recently, I guess a few years ago, where I realized, hey, you know what? You've actually, you know, as you said, gained a lot of wisdom. Uh, from this art form that you've consumed all over and it's not something that's separate to your spirituality something that's part of your spirituality something something very intimately close to you um, and and I, I love the way you look at you know the the, the film industry and, and and the way you've described um, you know uh, kind of navigating uh, or I, I guess the way you perceive the industry and the way you consume media because that's essentially what this whole journey is for me to be quite open with you is that kind of finding uh where i am in all this in, this in in this crazy in this crazy messiness that is you know my religion uh be it you know the obvious part of my religion my salah or my 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 inner faith or you know watching drive or the thin red line or the godfather and and where that kind of all you know falls into place so, so i definitely uh, appreciate that point Hassan, sorry go ahead i was gonna say i was gonna, i was gonna transition to something else <laughs> go ahead go for it um so okay so you know going back on what you said about um doing indie work and having control over over your work but then doing it at a higher mainstream level um is that kind of how you founded like your your, your consulting firm um numinous company is that is that kind of where that came out from can you talk to me a little bit about that yeah man uh thanks for bringing that up um yeah i would say i'm still in the pretty early stages of kind of um trying to build that into what I think it, a numinous company can become. Um, you know, I, it's a, something I've been thinking about for many years. I just was dragging my feet on 
getting it actually organized and launching it. Um, but you know, actually <laughs> being being cast in Miss Marvel is actually what kind of forced my hand, just from a from a very legal and just accounting standpoint. I had to have a legal entity through which to be contracted as an actor to take advantage of you know certain tax benefits and all that. And so one once it was like, all right, I'm creating my entity now anyway. Let me use that to finally organize things that I have been doing in a very, uh, you know, Muslim bubble quality uh, manner. You know, I've just been because these are my friends. You know, I work with my friends in show business. Many of them are Muslims and I keep it real friendly. I keep it real, you know, homey business. But it is important to be, you know, again, even as a Muslim, uh, our religion teaches us, you know, anytime you have an agreement, reduce it to writing. Mm -hmm. So being professional about our business obligations is part of our religion. You know, the messenger of God, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, people forget he was a business, he was an agent. His career, his dunyawi career, quote unquote, you know, how he met his first wife, right? He was an agent. He was a trader on behalf, on her behalf, going in and making deals. So being a trader, being a tajir, and being a, a commercial trader is actually prophetic. So this idea that often you know gets crept up into some of our discourse that is sort of like money is bad, money is inherently evil. All that stuff is wrong. It's not true. You know, it's not money is not inherently evil. It's how you obtain your money that matters. Are you ethical? And then once you get the money, well, what do you do with the money? If you're just about hoarding wealth and you know buying you know fancy um, you know luxury items and trying to get a Hasnain. yacht and stuff for Allah, listen to it. Stuff for Allah. Why would anybody do that? <laughs> yeah, you know it's like and, and again even all that it's like yeah hey, live your life just know that that's what your intention is right and if you're getting what you intended in this world then why are you why why would you ever maintain hope to get something beyond that in the next world our old dean is boiled down it's all about intention so if you want to be a rich famous guy. And so you can have all the toys in the dunya, and then God gives you all that, makes you a rich, famous guy, and gives you all the to toys in the dunya. Well, why would you expect to get anything in the next world, you know? So this is something I, I keep in my mind a lot. Um, anyway, long story short, Numinous Company is basically my small production slash consulting outfit. It allows me now, anytime any of my friends, I have a bunch of friends in Hollywood now who have cool, interesting projects going on, whether it's a TV show they're developing or a comedy special they're trying to put out or make a podcast or, you know, uh, write a script for a movie or whatever. And they want my input, right? Whereas previously it would just be on a homie tip. Like, hey, man, will you look over my script? Hey, will you listen to this and give me notes? Now it's like I can more formally say, of course, I would love to help. Here's how I suggest we do it. You know, I would, I would be a consultant or i'll be a consulting producer or mm. exec producer and in exchange for my services to do a b c d e f g you give me you know xyz nice and then we negotiate we make an agreement and we just you know it's it's kind of what i was talking about a moment ago like just the quality control better quality control more professionalism in my dealings with other creatives and collaborators and all that just ultimately brings greater clarity to what i'm doing day to day you know uh, recently, I would say in the past several months, I discovered or I learned something that has helped me quite a bit. Because I would, I tend to be a very like over analysis paralysis guy, just over analyzing the problem, you know, thinking of ten different solutions to the same problem. Where it's like, just pick one and just actually solve the problem. Stop trying to think of better ways to solve the problem. Just right. 
all the problem. So this is a problem that I have in my in my personality, and I know that. So one thing that has helped me a lot is to get out of this macro question, like what do you want to do with your life? Just such a difficult question to answer. What do you want to do with your life, right? Instead, there's a there's a more practical question, which makes it easier, which is how do you want to spend your days? Oh. I know how I want to spend my days. You know, I want to spend my days uh, working on stuff that I think is important and good and, and spreading light, not just making heat. And I want to work on it with people who are, you know, people I respect. And I respect people professionally for, who have two attributes, you know, personal integrity and professional competence. Problem is, generally, people have one or the other. I know a lot of people who have personal integrity. I trust them with my life and my soul and my kids, but they suck at business or they just don't, they're not good at the dunya we thing. Or I know people who are really good at it. They're masters of the dunya thing, but, you know, I don't trust them personally. So when I find people who have these two attributes, then it's like, yo, long-term player. So let me ask you this um, as like an actor, writer, producer, and a stand-up comedian yourself. When you make your own content, right? What do you find to be the most difficult part? Is it does is, does it does it come with the the idea creation, the script writing, the producing, the funding? What do you find is the most hardest? Well, first of all, I mean, I, if you notice, I haven't been making content for a while. Right. My own stuff, you know. So we we had the Allah made me funny tour years ago. We made a DVD slash concert film off of that. I made, I released one comedy album in my life, which was in 2004. Um, and I have not made content myself. I've just worked on other people's stuff for a while, precisely because I started realizing that, you know, I'm not good at, the self-promotion thing Nuri was talking about earlier, you know, he's trying to get more views on your podcast, right? You work so hard on this podcast. Of course, you want people to listen to it. But then to get them to listen to it, you got to engage in all this like me, 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 you know, give me your attention. Click on me. Look at me. I'm so dope. And just that whole thing. Like I, I was early to YouTube, man. I put a video on YouTube in 04, my first ever video, 04, 05. You know, I had this uh, sketch character called Tinku Patel. And uh, Tink, I had made this web series called Tinku's World, you know. Tinku's World is based on this premise that there's a guy, Tinku Patel, from India. And he's hired by this Chinese production company, uh, Red Millennium Films. <laughs> <laughs> Come to America and make a propaganda film against the United States. An anti-American propaganda movie. And he considers himself the Michael. I'm Michael Moore of India. You know? <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm Very funny. A character, hilarious. And I made a couple episodes. I think they're still on the internet. But I figured out very quickly, man, like, oh, why? This YouTube thing, the whole game is me, 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 you know? And then the the phenomenon of the YouTuber then came into existence. And then the whole idea of being a YouTuber, you know? Hey, what's up, guys? Don't forget to like and subscribe. Like, oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> like, I just, oh, I just, no. <laughs> I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. I was like, bro, I, I worked too hard to get good at stand-up comedy. But just that idea of like, hey, I'm a guy, and uh, look at me. Uh, don't forget to like and subscribe. I just couldn't do it. It just felt so gross to me. 
and I'm not even trying to be a hater, bro. I'm just sharing my personal being tr- tr- authentic to yourself, basically. Yeah, my, my personal sensibilities. Like, bro, I don't want to do that. I'm not that guy. Mm. You know. And another thing I realized early on about YouTubers is that you could become popular on a digital platform. You could blow up on TikTok or YouTube or Instagram right now, right? Let's say you have a million people, subscribers or whatever, followers, right? But if all you know how to do is make really good funny videos, the only way for you to monetize that is ads on the videos or sell them some merch maybe. But you cannot exploit the 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 biggest financial opportunity, which is live entertainment. You can't sell tickets to an event. You could try, and they did try, and it's like, yeah, but once you finally are in front of a theater of, you know, three hundred people, five hundred people, a thousand people, and you suck because you're not an entertainer. You don't know how to do comedy. You can't entertain live people. All you know how to do is sit in front of your, you know, screen and hey, what's up? Don't forget to like, subscribe. That's all you know how to do. You, then you're gonna you get you get to make one. You you make your bag one time, cheat all your fans one time, get the bags. And none of them are going to come back and see you live again because you suck. You're not a live entertainer. So I just realized this is a different lane. Mm. I am a stand-up comedian. Everything else that I've done has come out of this, my work as a stand-up comedian. I became a writer because I know how to do stand-up comedy. I became a producer because I know how to do stand-up comedy. I became an actor, which is ridiculous to me. I think acting is the stupidest thing, one of the stupidest activities on earth. <laughs> well, acting Sorry, acting has is so dumb. What's that? It's all good, man. Are you trying to be an actor? Hasnain is an actor. <laughs> so listen, I'm, I'm just keeping it real with you, bro. And I'm saying this as an actor. And I know actors who are very good at their craft. And I respect them that they that they work so hard on it. Like, that's cool. But just as an activity, as a human activity, like, oh, my. The idea that we live in a society, bro. We live in a world where it's like, okay, people who are really good at pretending we give them awards. So he got an Oscar, and now we should care what this guy thinks about anything in real life. Or tell us about foreign policy. The stupidest framing. It's that, Same thing it's, about athletes. It's, it's that. Sorry to cut you off. It's that, it's that Dave Chappelle joke, that classic one, when he says, um, uh, yeah, "What does uh, yeah, what does ja- what does Jarrell think about this?" <laughs> Have you seen this one? Last night? Oh, it's so exactly. funny. It's the perfect joke to illustrate this absurdity. And the same is true for athletes, by the way. You know, Mo Salah, God bless him. He kicks a ball around. Huh? <laughs> Man kicks a ball around, and somehow it's like this is a person who's – you're not a serious person. So it's like we live in this inverted world where people who are famous, they get celebrity and sta- they get the status because of notoriety that is born out of these instrumentalities of mass media. We value what they have to say, even though they don't have shit to say about anything. That they, we, there's no reason to take a person seriously because they're good at sports or acting or making people laugh or whatever. There's really no reason to take that person seriously. And then simultaneously, we don't take seriously the people who are like geniuses, brilliant, three PhDs, right. written, written, 20, written 20 books, and guys got you know 500 followers on Twitter because nobody gives a shit about it serious people so this is an inversion this is part of the this is a deeper deeper problem of the time we're in and as a result we're hurtling towards like this very very suicidal type of outcome for our species as human beings and instead of being able to see clearly what's happening we're all just you know caught up in the in the wave 
caught up in the wave of, of just, you know, validating this insane world. Like uh, Fudayl ibn Iyad, I just read this quote recently. And he's a great uh, Sufi saint. He started as a criminal, and then he had a big change of heart, and he became a saint. But Fudayl ibn Iyad, he said, you know, the world, he said, the, <laughs> he said the world is an insane asylum. And uh, people, and the people who inhabit it are, are insane, are mental patients. And mental people, mental, mentally insane people always must be kept in, in prison, basically, in, in an asylum. And that's what it is. Like, we're, we're living in, a, we live in an insane asylum, bro. Mm. And the comedian's job is just to, you know, uh, George I like Carlin. That. Yeah, George Carlin had a wonderful uh, description. He said, look, this world is a insane asylum shit show. And when you're a comedian, you get a front row. No, he said, and some of us get a front row seat. When you're born an American, you get a front row seat to it. And he said, and some of us are comedians. And he had a, he said, and we have a notebook. And that's it. That's the difference. We're just sitting there watching the shit show, taking notes. Like, this is ridiculous, bro. We live in an absurd <laughs> world. Like, why, why do we take people seriously because they're good at pretending? It's so silly. It's so ridiculous. It's like, Something children would do, you know what I mean? Like, oh, let's play house. Let's pretend. Let's play house. Oh, you're so convincing as the mother. Now I'm gonna <laughs> take you as a leader. Here's an award. What the hell? <laughs> yeah, it's so stupid, bro. I'm sorry. And then, by the way, I've come to believe that stand-up comedy, in many ways, is stupid as well. I mean, stand-up is stupid, bro. Like, just as an activity, because ultimately, it's all the same magic trick over and over. It's the same magic trick. I'm bored by stand-up, you know. Hey guys, you ever thought of X? Well, let me tell you about Y and how X is like Y. <laughs> shut up, bro. <laughs> shut up. I mean, so most people just shut up, you know, myself included. Like, <laughs> uh, I, I realized also that my relationship with truth, you know, Hasnain, you were touching on this earlier. Something you said reminded me of this. Uh, oh, about the, about the speaker's square. What is it called? Speaker's corner. Speaker's corner. Yeah. You know, where it's like uh, people are there, they're fighting and they're debating, whatever. And it's like, bro, I'm actually not interested in debating anybody. And the reason I realize that is because I don't care what anybody thinks. In fact, I don't even care what I think. Because I just want to know what's true. I just want to know what's objectively the truth, bro. One of the things that irked me the most about going through a public school education in the United States and then getting an advanced degree, going to law school, have a law degree, people look at that like, oh, you have a lawyer, you're a lawyer, you're, you have a law degree. It's like, bro, I slept through my law degree. I literally never, hardly ever went to class because 99% of education, the so-called education system in the West today, in the Socratic method, is what? It's get an assigned reading, go to class the next day, then the professor goes around the room. So, uh, Nuri, what did you think about that? Well, I thought blah, 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 blah. Oh, well, Hasnain, what do you think? Well, I think, well, I was like, well, I don't care what you think. I don't care what I think. <laughs> Who cares what you think? Who cares about your opinion? That's true. Well, I, That's I, I feel, I feel blah, 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 blah. I feel, well, fuck your feelings, bro. I don't care about your feelings. I don't care about my feelings. Who cares about feelings and, and, and emotions and made up ideas? Opinions. It's irrelevant. I want to know what is actually true. That's all I want to know about. And so therefore, it's like my relationship with truth claims evolved to the point where it's like, bro, I don't care what I think about it or how I feel about it. Irrelevant. I just want to know what is actually true. And the definition of that is that which would be true even if I never existed. That's, That's how I know I have removed myself from the equation because my feelings and my opinions are irrelevant. 
if I never existed, if there was never a guy that God created called Azur Usman or Hasnain Ali or Nuri Sardar, guess what? The sky would still be blue. The grass would still be green. Two plus two would still equal four. And there is no God but Allah. And the Prophet Muhammad is a messenger of God. So, so like, these are just facts, bro. So yeah, just man. having a dispassionate relationship that is completely disconnected from trying to convince you of my, I'm not, I don't care. I don't have any my views. And I, I want to convince you of my views. All of this is ego, has nothing to do with the truth. All of it is irrelevant to me. All of it is heat, not light. Deep, deep. Hasnain, you can't follow that with any, any wisdom, wisdom of, of your own, can you? <laughs> nah, I'm going to let him win this one. <laughs> I'll get I'll, back to him. I'll start winding down uh, before we get into uh, the last question, which is uh, something we ask all, I guess. Um, as my new sheikh, uh, you know, you, you've now become my new sheikh, so you know, enjoy, the, enjoy the constant questions I'm going to send you. Um, I, I, really wanted to, <laughs> I really wanted to ask you um, about uh, Sufism and its kind of uh, relationship with, um, you know, I, I guess how it's, how it's helped you um, uh, live uh, uh, life, especially with your career. Sufism is, is something I'm very intrigued by as someone who grew up around Sufism. My mom used to take me to, to dhikr sessions. My dad is a follower of uh, Sheikh Nazim. So I, I grew up around Sufism, but I, I kind of became detached from it uh, growing up. And it's something I'm actually very intrigued uh, by now uh, in this stage of my life, I guess, as I return to my authentic self, um, looking back uh, and kind of reconnecting with, with, my, with my roots. So I guess... I'm not asking you to define Sufism in two minutes. Um, what, 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 what I do, what I'm intrigued by is how um, you know that kind of lifestyle uh, of being a Sufi or aspiring to be a Sufi has kind of helped you within uh, your your career, dare I call it that, or your uh, your uh, yearning to express yourself as an artist. My questions are very deep. I know. <laughs> He doesn't care about your question. <laughs> mm, bismillah. You know, a'udhu billah min ash-shaytan al-rajim. Bismillah. The first and most important thing I've ever learned from Sufi teachers is ittaqoo man idda'a Beware the makers of claims. Hmm. In many ways, that's enough. Just go through your life and you will encounter people who are making claims about the truth and you must be aware. Uh, there's a lot of cult, cult leaders out there. A lot of charlatans out there. A lot of self-interested parties. They're getting something out of it. Money, power, fame, sex, Billah. There's a lot of cults. So that's the first and most important piece of advice I've ever received is beware the makers of things. The second thing I've learned from them is, you know, you must submit to one who is worthy of your submission. Otherwise, you will benefit from no one and no one will benefit from you. Operative phrase, to me anyway, is one who is worthy of your submission. 
a lot of people get tripped up on the way because a lot of us get tripped up on the way because we end up submitting to one who is not worthy of that submission. That's how you end up getting taken advantage of. The third thing I would say about the subject is, you know, I would never, Billah, you know, and again, beware the makers of claims. Mm -hmm. Me saying I'm not making a claim is a claim. So it's like, you know, I've, I've never in my own heart, let alone to others, said like, I'm a Sufi. Mm. <laughs> that's an insane, to me, that's a crazy claim, mm. you know. Uh, what we learn from our Akabirin, from our elders is, you know, love the Sufis and attempt to be among them and attempt to be with them. But, you know, don't make claims about it. You know, I don't claim Billah to be a Sufi. I claim to love the Sufi, the real Sufis. And I also recognize that there's a lot of goofy Sufis, fake, counterfeit. You know, we're living in the age of counterfeits. Mm. There's counterfeit everything that exists, you know. Lust and porn is counterfeit love. Social media is counterfeit friendship. You know, crypto is counterfeit money. Money itself has become counterfeit money. Fiat currency is counterfeit gold has no real intrinsic value. Age of counterfeits. You know, it's Dajjal. It's the, this is all Dajjalic, by the way. You know, the, the age of the Dajjal is the age of counterfeits, the age of inverted reality. So, dangerous times, brother. So, to, that's a long, I'm already past your two-minute. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, just, I'll, I'll just conclude this. I'll conclude by sharing with you some of the wisdom that has reached us from the early days, you know, which is that you know, they've been saying this from a couple here, hundred years after the Prophet Sallam, which was that the moment this term entered the lexicon, tasawwuf. Tasawwuf, you know, was not a word that was ever uttered by the Sahaba. Mm. This is a discipline that emerges in the history of Islam. But they also never said tajweed. You know, they never said uh, nahu, you know, grammar. But these are things that were known to them, but they, did, they were not systematized into disciplines of knowledge. So similarly, they say that, you know, in the early days of Islam, tasawwuf, Sufism, was a reality without a name. And today it's become a name without a reality. Hmm. And the last thing I'll say about it, which I learned from uh, you know, a sheikh I spent many years with, where I learned a lot, man, and it's too much to get into. It's probably a whole other podcast, but you know, I ended up uh, leaving that group after 15 plus years for reasons I don't want to get into right now, but I did benefit tremendously from his teaching and from his wisdom. And he used to say this all the time, man. He would say, you know, Tasawwuf, he's Pakistani, so he spoke in Urdu, right? He's like, Tasawwuf, it's not words. It's not qala yaqulu, you know. He said, it was said, it's not words. It is a state of being where your heart is present to Allah 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Sleeping, eating, breathing, talking, watching TV. Your heart, dil. Dastabakar, dil bayar. Hands working, heart with the king. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So this, so Sufism is nothing more than the, the 
the method, the teaching, and the practice to train yourself to live in that state. And you know, we pray that God definitely brings us to the real ones who have this state and those who teach us, who can teach us how to cultivate this state. And may God, you know, give us that state. I mean, that's, Deep, that's the goal. I mean, One of the goals. Beautiful. Get your heart right. Beautiful. Ascent. Um, final question before we let you go, bro. Um, it's a question we ask all of our guests. Um, and I guess it means different things uh, to, to different uh, people, uh, the word spirituality. Um, but what would you say, you know, again, you know, I know, I know it's a hard thing to talk about in, in a few minutes, but how would you describe the relationship between your art uh, and your desire to, to express art and create art and your spirituality, uh, your, you know, whatever you define that to be? Um, I, I guess I don't, I don't even have the words to explore that. It's just, uh, I'm too close to it, you know? Mm. Like my life is a spiritual path and my work is integrally related to my life. So I don't compartmentalize it that way where it's like, oh, how does my spirituality affect my art? Like, it's just, I'm too close. I'm just living my life trying to get right before I die. You know, trying to, God bless you. Thanks. Just trying to get right before I die, bro. That's the way I go through life. I, I, in many ways, it's already, I feel already like, okay, I'm in the bonus round. Because I got hit by that car and that was completely life altering. Right. And then I, I, you know, I spent a lot of time trying to reconcile aspects of my life that were out of integrity. You know, all the million different little ways in which, you know, life can be out of integrity. So I, I put myself under that microscope. It started to see very clearly, like, oh man, I'm out of integrity here. I gotta fix that. I'm out of integrity here. I gotta fix that. And so, it just started like dominoes. They all started falling. And that's not to say that oh, suddenly it's like oh, now I'm perfect. Like, of course, I still have a million. My whole life is a big contradiction, man. I I I would have quit comedy and quit entertainment many years ago if I didn't have a sheikh who basically advised me that this is my path. You have to. I have to walk this path. And, uh, you know, Ibn al-Ta'illah al-Iskandari, rahimahullah. If you don't know who he is, you can look him up. He's uh, Alexandrian, you know, Sufi sheikh and mystic and incredible figure from Islamic history. So he wrote a book called Al-Hikam, The Aphorisms. And Ibn al-Ta'illah al-Iskandari, rahimahullah, God have mercy on his eternal soul. He has this amazing hikmah, this amazing... Uh, wisdom teaching in the hikam where he says basically the meaning of what of his hikmah of his wisdom teaching is your desire to leave the world when god has put you in it represents a hidden appetite shahwatul khafi shahwa he uses the word shahwa an appetite a, a, a passionate desire the opposite is also true. Your desire to enter the world, if God has kept you out of it, represents a hidden appetite. So all this hateration of like, oh, I don't want to be a comedian, I don't want to work in show business, it's all, ultimately it's still ego, it's still nafs. Mm. You must bloom where you are planted. Deep. This is what the This is what the real masters say. You must bloom where you are planted. So my job is to figure out in life how to navigate my path and do so in a way without selling out, without 
selling out my core values without doing things I don't want to do without. And it's not to say I, I'm doing a perfect job. I've already made mistakes and I will continue to make mistakes. And I just ask that God forgive me for those mistakes. You know, I don't make no claims to be perfect or, to, or even to have worked it out. You know, this is very much a work in progress. And that's why I look at life as like, okay, if life is a test, well, it's an open book test and we're allowed to share notes and come and, and help each other pass. So that's the way I go through life, man. It's like I, anybody I meet, if I can learn something from them, I try to learn from them. If I can teach them something, I teach. I try to teach them something. But ultimately, it's like this is the story of life: is just trying to get right before you die. And for me, as a comedian who has built a live, you know, built a livelihood through creative work, that is a never-ending riddle. Uh, maybe the last thing, a nice neat button to end this whole topic on is uh, a great quote that I came across attributed to Confucius. Confucius supposedly said, a man has two lives. The second one begins the moment he realizes he only has one. Mm. That's deep. Damn. Ours. That's deep. That's powerful. Ours. Man like Confucius. Ours. Damn. Shout out Confucius. <laughs> Shout out Confucius. <laughs> also, <laughs> I appreciate you. Also. I, I know, you know, you, you said you, you walk through life learning from people. I know you learned so many lessons from Hasnain on this episode. Hasnain, you know, he just imparts so much wisdom sure. upon all of us. So, you know, uh, thank you, Hasnain, for your wisdom. Um, also, I know you don't like to, to mark yourself hey, too much, uh, but uh, where can people find you? Where can people follow you? Where can people uh, catch up on your latest work? Yeah, man. So, I mean, look, as much as I hate the whole, you know, like me, follow me, all that stuff. You know, we got to live in the world. <laughs> so I have a website, azhar.com, A-Z-H-A-R.com. And then I got links to all my social media accounts and all that stuff. And I'm, I'm actually kind of at a brink. I'm at the brink of launching this new phase of my the rest of my career, nice. which is going to be built, inshallah, on Web3, decentralized media, decentralized content, uh, the metaverse. So, you know, Azra Osman will be operating as Lion of Light in the metaverse. And what does that mean? What does that look like? TBD. But I'm working on some real cool next-gen VR stuff. So I'm very excited about, uh, inshallah, the moves that are coming. Awesome. Can't wait to see it. Cool. appreciate you, man. Take care, man. Asalaamu Alaikum. Thanks for spending time with us here over at 7 Ace Boulevard. A kind reminder that you can find us on all your favorite podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor, and we are also on YouTube. Hit that subscribe button and hit the notification button so you're always notified whenever we release an episode, which is every Sunday, inshallah. Hopefully we'll see you again next week. Thanks for joining us here over at 786 Boulevard.